Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. We are too hopeful. We are too aggrieved. We want to escape, but not too far. Not yet. Not yet. This program features the work of 2023 writer Hana Choi. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Priscilla Long, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. Hannah, could you describe your Jack Straw project? My Jack Straw project is a piece of short fiction that takes place in an immigrant detention center. The story revolves around a group of detainees who perform a seance to summon the spirits of their fellow inmates who had taken their own lives. This story was inspired by my own experience working as a pro bono lawyer for detained asylum seekers. I have been wanting to write something about this subject and about the lives of people within these walls of detention centers because their stories are often unheard or ignored, even though the U.S. has the largest immigrant detention system in the world with hundreds of thousands of immigrants detained each year. And in writing this story, I also wanted to bring in elements of beauty and humor not just to engage the reader, but also to highlight the resilience of these people. And I think I mostly write realist fiction, but for this piece, I stepped outside of the constraints of realism, and I think that helped me, helped me to achieve that. Um, So this project also broadened my horizon as a fiction writer in that sense. And when did you start writing? I started writing in the winter of 2020. That was when I signed up for my very first writing class. It was Fiction One at Gotham Writers Workshop. Oh, okay. (laughs) Exciting. And what made you decide to go in that direction? It was really the pandemic, ironically, uh, that gave me the opportunity because I started working from home, which meant I had more time, uh, like a lot of people at that time. So... That's why I decided to try this class, and I wrote my very first short story in that class. It was about 3,000 words long. It was a short story about a new mother struggling to breastfeed her baby, Uh. and it was based on my personal experience at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't know how to write, so it was not a well-crafted story, (laughs) but still, I still remember... The moment I put down like the last word of that story when I wrote the ending, that I was just overcome with like so much emotion that I started crying at my desk and it just felt so cathartic. Mm. Uh, And that's how how I knew that I had to keep going. Oh, great. Now, what is your daily or what is your practice of writing? How do you go about with everything else you have to do? So... Being a parent and a mother 
made me a morning person against my will. <laughs> so <laughs> I usually go to bed fairly early, uh, around 10 o'clock, and I, yeah. I, I get up at 4.30 in the morning to write so that I have a, an interrupted chunk of time in the morning before right. my son wakes up. Yeah, so that has been my routine. And also, who have been your mentors and your teachers? My very first two teachers, Susan Harper Fox and Seth Freed, they were so supportive and so encouraging. And when I was just like a baby writer and a second language writer who was just trying to put sentences together at the time. And yeah, they were so encouraging that it gave me confidence to keep going. And then I took a year-long fiction class at Hugo House. Oh. Uh, and my teacher was Peter Mountford. Mm -hmm. And uh, in his class, I think I really learned the craft of fiction and started to develop a sense of my creative identity. Mm -hmm. You plan a book of, of short stories, correct? And how far along are you with that project? Uh, I think I have about 15 stories that I can choose from. So I have a good number of stories that I just have to revise them and polish them. But I also recently started working on my first novel. Oh. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm working on both at the same time. Great. That's a great idea to work on two projects at the same time, actually. Yeah, okay. That's yes. Good to know. <laughs> so that I yes. have a relief from one project, right? When I get, relief, and yeah. then if you get a little stuck on one, you can, instead of stopping, you just go to the other one for a while. Yeah. Then you go back to the one, and it seems easier to. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, think so. I hope so. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <clears throat> so, um, uh, do you feel that being bilingual enriches your writing? I Yeah, I think it enriches my writing because um, I think having access to two languages kind of expands your understanding of humans, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> our experiences, our different shades of emotions. So, for instance, there are concepts in Korean that cannot be translated mm -hmm. English. So if I only spoke English, I would never... No, no, I know I right? only speak English, but can you tell me? No, like... it was impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah, it's just not translatable. Uh, so I, 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 I think like if I only spoke English, I would never even know these concepts even exist in the first place, you uh -huh. know, let, let alone understand what they, they mean. So in that sense, I think it really does enrich my writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have a sense of the audience you're writing for at this point? Okay, so I think it's a really difficult question. I, I wondered about it myself many times because some of the stories I have written, they're set in Korea. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I wonder, like, why would people here care about what happened in Korea in, like, 1990s? I asked that question myself. I think a lot of people yeah. are very interested in okay. what happens in Korea in the 1990s. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. But, yeah, anyway, I wrestled with this question, and then I wasn't able to come up with a satisfactory answer, and I just thought that I was, I just write for myself. And that kind of sounded a little awful and narcissistic, but then I was 
recently reading um, Toni Morrison interview in Paris Review, and the interviewer there asked her kind of a similar question. And she said, when I sit down to write, I don't really think about any particular audience. I just write for myself. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's a good idea because if you're writing, f- I mean, it's an interesting question, like who out there is going to read this? But <clears throat> on the other hand, if you're writing, you're, you're not writing for an audience. Otherwise, you're trying to please or think about what would they really want to hear, which you don't know. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think we all write for ourselves at first anyway. I write the kind of stories that I find interesting that engage my mind and my curiosity. And I'm an immigrant, so I often write about immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and my Jackstra project about detained immigrants, I think their stories need to be told more, yeah. more often, more loudly. And that's why I decided to write it. Um, yes. Yeah. And you have knowledge and information because of your being a lawyer, correct? Yeah, yeah. No, it was partly inspired by my experience uh, many, many years ago when I was working as a young lawyer in New York uh, that I worked with asylum seekers who were detained in a detention center, and uh, I just could not forget mm. that experience and the stories I heard at the time, uh, and I think it kind of haunted me <laughs> for many years. Yeah. So uh, I figured I should write something about it. Now we'll hear a selection from Hannah's live reading. Seance at Santa Maria Detention Center. We begin at 10.30 when they turn out the lights. We are 25 immigrant detainees in dorm three of Santa Maria Detention Center. We're manicurists, nannies, orange pickers, cooks, medical assistants, and cleaning pros. And we have each brought what is most precious to us to communicate with the dead. We sit in a circle, our spines straight, our knees bent in neat corners. It is a clear Sunday the moonlight painting us pale and earnest. One by one, we place our offerings in the center of the circle. We imagine a heap of extravagance, candied apples with stick handles, a tin of loose chamomile flowers, loud and impractical hats. For a moment, we forget we're prisoners. All but five of us have brought family pictures. We turn to Trang. We're concerned about the lack of variety, bashful about our consensus. Trang has taught us about the seance, the way it has been passed down in her family. She knows the methods, the protocols. We're relieved when she nods. She tells us it is not the variety, but the truth of our choices that matters. We nod. Puja has brought her only pair of glasses. Natalia has brought her rosary. Marla has brought her last phone card with 20 minutes still left to use. 
Carmen has brought a business card. It's my lawyer's, she says. But is it really? We ask. We know she cannot afford a lawyer. After her husband broke his spine at a condo job site, she was the one who supported her family. A family of two spiraling teenagers, a withered father, and a grandmother with lost memories. A family that was evicted just a week ago. Have you even talked to this lawyer? We press again. Carmen admits she has not, but says she will. Oh, yes, she absolutely will hire this lawyer. It is her conviction that persuades us. We know only truth can be as foolish. Then at last, we get to the most curious offering a bundle of hair tied with a string. We turn to Big Afia. There are two Afias in our dorm. We call Big Afia Big Afia because she is small and quiet and carries such heaviness. We ask her if it is her lover's hair. Big Afia nods. We smile. It is romantic. We all have read stories about girls snipping ringlets for their beloveds, who must be away for a while for dangerous and compelling reasons. Then, as our eyes go dreamy, Big Afia tells us her story. They burned on our house is how the story begins. We learn that they means vigilantes, those who hate someone like Big Afia, a woman loving a woman, a crime in the country where she was born. The whole of a partner was crushed by thudded chunks of her home. There was no time. Big Afia took what she could. A fistful of hair that still smelled like coconut oil and cigarette smoke. We're relieved when Trang begins to sing our song to initiate the seance. We know from Sophia's face, pink, sinking, that she's about to cry. It is she among us who has the most tender feelings, but some stories, they deserve more than fast tears. Trang's voice rises. It is the same song her great-great-grandmother sang to summon a village full of souls, all died in a demented war. It is the kind of song that bombs the memories, that floats like an invitation. We listen. When our dead doormates arrive, they look unsurprised, disapproving. Took you long enough, Maria says. Three whole weeks? Shanti grumbles. We tell them we are sorry. We tell them we have been in mourning, of course. But we also had a situation. Food poisoning, all of us. We saw the meatloaf was green, yes. But we had been blinded by hunger. We pulled our vomit in our hands and pitched it like a baseball. They put us in the hole for 15 days. With that story, we are forgiven. Both Maria and Shanti had been in the hole when they hanged themselves with bed sheets. Which brings us to our first question. Was that coordinated? Maria shakes her head. Shanti laughs her sweet booming laugh. It tickles us too, they tell us. 
But there aren't that many ways to do it in this place. No guns, no pills, no razor blades, no unbarred windows to jump out of. They took away all our sheets, Puja grumbles. Thanks for nothing. We admonish Puja, even though we know she shivers every night and has a bad knee. We do not want to annoy the dead because we are finally about to ask the question. We ask, is it better there? Better, they tell us, because they can taste the open air. They can smell the earth and hear the bustling leaves. It keeps you sane, Shanti says. Better, they tell us, because they can be with their families. They tell us deportation is a joke when you can transport yourself anywhere. One minute you're in Guatemala attending your cousin's wedding. The next minute you're in California watching your five-year-old scoop and splash bathwater. I've never felt more alive, Maria says. Better, they tell us, because they can haunt Bear. Bear is the guard who gives us too frequent, too slow pat-downs. Thick fingers that like to linger, breath smelling of pancake syrup. Maria and Shanti tell us they tickled his feet for nine hours, swapped his toothpaste with superglue, <laughs> and lured a family of bees into his Corolla. The car drove into an oak, snapping his ribs into eight pieces. They say whoops and chuckle. <laughs> But we do not chuckle. We do not smile. We are in no mood. We have never admitted it, not even to ourselves. But all along we have wanted them to say, no, death is a horrible void that is undeniably worse than your present suffering. We have wanted them to say, remain. Time for us to go, Maria and Shanti say to us now, their bodies thinning and ascending. When they wave at us, we can see the dark ceiling through their open palms. That's when Big Afia jumps out of the circle. She says, wait. Maria says something, then Shanti, but their voices are too faint to reach us. Take me with you, Big Afia says. They do not answer. Take me with you, Big Afia says again. She means it. We can tell by her wild, unguarded face. But that is how we know we are not ready. We are too weak. We are too tough. We are too hopeful. We are too aggrieved. We want to escape, but not too far. Not yet, not yet. So what else can we do but gather our broken parts and rise because the seance is over and we are alive. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. 
Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Aisha Obiadelica, and Steve DeTori. Our theme music is by Brian Smith, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2023 curator of this program is Priscilla Long, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture, Washington State Arts Commission, the U District Partnership, National Endowment for the Arts, Rainier Institute and Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org.